Welcome to the Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts, Maggie Mutesi and Dumi Jere, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa. Greetings, everyone, and thanks a lot for joining us on uh, this episode of The Weekly Beat. My name is Maggie Omotesi, and I am coming to you from Nairobi in Kenya. Akko Doku is an analyst and um, is joining us from South Sudan. Akko, thanks a lot for co-hosting this show with me today. I'm super excited. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to having a great discussion. I know. How is South Sudan? How is the weather? Uh, it's raining. It's the rain season, so there's a lot of rain these days. Oh, no. But moving away from that, this week, last week actually, Burkina Faso's leader was deposed in a second coup in nine months. Now, this follows during um, Mali, talking about Guinea, Conakry, all of which have had coups in the past one year. It's, it, it's becoming a trend, a coup. I actually saw somebody on Twitter say, you know, um, it looks like we are getting used to coup details in the West African region. Obviously, it's creating a lot of instability, but also uh, making the the, the bridge on a little bit fragile in terms of business and investment. Everybody would like to, you know, run away and, and, and be able to operate in a more stable and a more open environment, obviously. What are your thoughts on this? I think it's a little bit um, unfortunate, especially in 2022, that we're still having conversation on coup d'etats in West Africa. Well, I think we have to look at the culture of coup d'etats, particularly in West Africa. Um, West Africa's coup d'etat culture um, is nothing new. So in 2022, it's not something the first time you're hearing about it. Um, we start with the, you know, the giant of Africa, Nigeria. Nigeria had, had its first coup d'etat in 1966, and then in that same year had another coup d'etat, then in, in 1975. And until 1999, Nigeria had a series of military juntas. Same thing with Burkina Faso. The Burkina Faso, the leader that was just deposed, came to power in the coup d'etat, and he deposed the former leader in the coup d'etat, who came to power in the coup d'etat, who deposed the other leader who came in the coup d'etat. So I think we have to look at sometimes the political culture, where you have countries in Africa where people come through power either through coup d'etats, through revolutions, and then they maintain their power to legitimizing their revolution, legitimizing their force through using the means of elections, using the means of democracy, and go on, and, and so on. So I don't think there's nothing to worry about because in terms of Africa, it shows that we haven't come the long way we have that we want, or that the standards that were set for us are not standards that address our needs. Because this culture of big men politics in Africa, where you have people that rule for a long time, and maintain stability and order is done. Now there's a new generation that's hungry for change, that's hungry for a more uh, quote-unquote democratic transition. And that's what happened in Guinea. Um, Alpha Conde wanted to extend his term, and Alpha Conde wanted to uh, essentially cement his rule, and that created a problem with the Guinea military, which resulted in a school. And now as we speak, Mabudu, the president, the, the current head of state of Guinea, is saying that they want to transition to a democracy. So it's not necessarily an issue of culture. It's saying that in this 2022, there's been a frustration among Africans of what can we do to make the change that we want. And in West Africa, it's always been cool. There's nothing new. I mean, Kwame Nkrumah 
the great African Pan-African was overthrown in a coup. Um, many of these people, you see, even these African statesmen, such as Olusegun Olise Obasanjo, participated in a coup himself. He participated in coups in the 1970s. Uh, at one point, he was the head of a military junta in 1976 after the botched coup of Muhammad Murtala. They're saying now the president of uh, president of Nigeria, Muhammadu Buhari, Muhammadu Buhari overthrew a, a democratic elected government in 1983 of Sheikh Shigeli. And he himself was overthrown in a coup. And he's the head of state. So when you look around, you still see remnants of the old guard, so to speak, of the old way. Yeah. This is not just in West Africa, yeah. across Africa. Yeah, but that's, the, that's uh, I think that's completely understandable. But it's like, I, this is how I look at it. Taking 10, you know, 10 steps ahead and then 50 steps back. We look, we, we're talking about the 70s. And you're looking at um country or region that is um, suffering from, uh, you know, um, insecurity. Um, um, from terrorism, this is Mali, this is the Sahel, but also it's one of the most um, resource-rich regions in Africa, with a lot of oil, a lot of minerals, and all of that. And what this, well, you know, it's like a, a captain overthrowing another another colonel and all of that. But you know, him saying, "Yo, what, the reason we're doing this is because of um, the insurgencies, because of the insecurity in the country." But what can you achieve in eight months, really? A call, and for me. I think one of the things that worries me so much is the fact that we have the African Union, we have the ECOS, and for a period of four years, I mean, look at Mali since it started having the coups. What really has happened to the country? What kind of trade the country since those four years of, you know, uh, change of military military leaders in the past couple of years? There is absolutely nothing. They've closed off its borders as far as, I think, eight months ago when the new leader, could since February, when they, they extended their term. So you're limiting trade, you're limiting movement of people. You can't fly into Mali now. Now you're putting Burkina Faso, a neighboring, another neighboring country. Can you really achieve a lot from a coup d'etat? Uh, yeah, I think it's a big dilemma because it's not necessarily an issue of what can you do in nine months. It's an issue of people are um, in a rush for change and they don't see that sometimes change takes a while. Change is something that is so long term that it takes time, uh, especially recovering an economy that's been devastated for decades. It's going to take sometimes mm-hmm. decades or mm-hmm. more than decades. And this is what we see in a democracy where in most democratic systems, the idea is that you have to give the candidate uh, a term. His term is to perform. And if he doesn't perform at the end of his term, you're allowed to vote him out of power. Similar to what we're seeing in Kenya, where now you have a new president and their term is there, and he's allowed to vote him. They're allowed to vote him out of power in five years, but you can't do anything in the next five years. You have to give him the chance to work. But in these militarized societies, become more about power. I mean, many of these people, they want to gain power. I mean, the former president of Burkina Faso was ousted. What can he really do in nine months to recover an economy? What can he do to stabilize an insurrection? Um, even they say that he didn't do enough to fight uh, Islamic terrorism. He didn't do enough to fight to combat uh, economic problems. But in nine months, what did he do? And then the question becomes, okay, you, the one who overthrew him, what can you do in nine months? What are you going to do that this person didn't do? Exactly. Yeah, the question is like, it's easy to talk about government and politics when you're outside. But once you get inside, you have a lot of variables that you have to calculate. And this is the challenge that a lot of people face because there's a difference between being an activist and somebody who talks about change and then being in position of power to make those changes. Um, you see this in so many countries, such as uh, you look at Zambia, for example, mm. where the new president is being pressured to really deal with the Chinese and kick out the Chinese. But the Chinese 
own a lot of debt. They owe the Chinese billions of dollars. You can't kick out somebody you owe money to. You have to find a way to deal with this person diplomatically. And so this, you have this brand of reactionary politics in Africa where you have people that want people to come and do revolutionary changes in one day. But those changes can't happen. It's the same way, except like in South Africa, you couldn't have a change where people said, you know, all the white people should be kicked out. I mean, there's some white people there that been living there for a while. And it's the same thing, like the reactionary changes that Mugabe did by taking out the farms. Yes, the populace sometimes needs to be guided. And so sometimes these cool, you call them popular uprising, but the question is, does the public know what they want? Because sometimes the public wants to feel a sense of change, such as now in Burkina Faso, you have overthrown the president. Now what? What are you gonna do now? Um, you are complaining about fighting terrorism, but you, many of those people were in the military. They could have helped in addressing terrorism. So any failure of the president to to address terrorism falls on them too because they're military officers. So it's an interesting thing where we have to ask ourselves in Africa, okay, people part of the system are usually the one to overthrow the system that they work. It's never somebody outside the system. Many coups, many revolutions are people who were once part of the system and so like these officers, they were military officers in the government and in the military. What did they do to fight terrorism? What did they do to stabilize uh, the economy? What did they do to ensure security? So these are the questions that have to be asked. I mean, you know, I read somewhere that um, is in total we've had 106 coups that have been successful in Africa since independence. Um, you know, I, obviously the first countries that gained independence was in the early 1960s. So when when you think about it and and, and you look at it, it's just like in a short period of time having 100 and more than 100 coups. That is so much to take from each country because you're looking at it that if you're changing leaders, you're taking steps back. But it's it's a very good question that you ask. The, the people that actually do these coups are people that are within the system. They could easily change the system within but they choose to go um, another way. It, it kind of feels like there is a huge gap between, you know, the leadership in Africa and the population and the citizens. And it somehow reminds me in the early 2000s, I don't want to say that's what really happening, but you remember the Arab Spring and this is what we kept on saying and at some point it just feels like West Africa has just become notorious because this is the seventh coup that is happening in two years. Um, where is the gap? What is happening? Where is this living investors? Where is the, the, the gap and what can really be done to, to bring back stability in this region? Because we're talking of the AFCFTA, we're talking of negotiating, we're talking of building a one block, and we cannot even unite within ourselves, or even regional blocks can barely do anything. Isn't that such yeah, a big problem? I think the biggest challenge when we talk about regional blocks, if it's the AU, ECOWAS, um, you have IGAD, SADIC, EFD, it's you have, there are heads of states in those blocks that came through power through coups and through war. Um, and, it's, it's, and so how do you expect them to uphold values of democracy when they themselves, the way they came to power was not in a democratic way. They didn't come to power by campaigning one in elections. Um, and so how do you expect them to condemn these things? Because at the same time, the only time they condemn these coups is because they feel like that can something happen to them. So they condemn it. But I think with the question of, uh, you say, economies and de development, stability is important. And that's why many people argue that democracy is the best way to offer stability, because you know that after four years, this person 
person is going to go to election and has to get another popular mandate. And then after another four years, he may have to leave. Oh, there's term limits and not a term limit. But now the biggest thing about democracy is that Africans overlook is that we don't have systems of governance where you can have an elected leader who wins elections time and time again. But the question is, do you have the institutions to safeguard and protect the integrity of the country, protect your citizenship, protect investors, and create a conducive environment for economic development? That's the big key because you can have elections. You can have uh, elections every five years. Some people can question it, but you can say, hey, I'm an elected person. But if you look at some of the biggest economies in Africa, they're seen as that the political parties are not really conducive. I mean, look at Egypt. Egypt has, the president of Egypt came to power in a coup. You look at Nigeria, Nigeria, the current president himself has a history in the military. So the question has to be, what culture or what political culture are we creating? Can we, When we talk about progress in Africa, are we talking about progress in terms of we don't have violence anymore? Or are we talking about progress where we have institutions that can last for a decade, institutions that can last for 20, 30, 40 years? If somebody leaves power, it doesn't affect the institution. Mm, I think progress should really start with stability. Shouldn't we agree? Stability and free movement of people. Yes. And stability comes when there's not fear of war, there's not fear of military attacks, it's not a fear of if it's terrorism, if it's rebellion, insurgency. There's a list of things stability comes with here. Ability to feel like I can move around in peace. This is why we don't have infrastructure, inter-Africa infrastructure. There's no roads amongst Africa. To travel inside of Africa is a hassle. You're, it's easier to go to China than it is to go, it's easier for me to go to China from South Sudan than it is to go to West Africa. Uh, and it's so many connections you have to go here because the inter-Africa infrastructure, the big elephant in the room is security, or you say insecurity, or how do you show this security? And so these are the biggest challenge facing people. We are looking at a continent that has regions that really need as much. Uh, if you look still that region within Cameroon, there is so much to talk about. We've seen the English region experience a lot of instability. Move to West Africa, Yorani of Mali is still under military leadership. Guinea is still under military leadership. Um, now Burkina Faso has had a second coup in uh, eight months. It's not so far from what Mali has experienced in the past, but it poses a lot of questions around um, development within that region, which is the Francophone region of Africa, but also, you know, most of these countries are having sanctions from the ECOWAS because of the coup d'etat. So sanctions come with limitations when it comes to trade, they come with limitations when it comes to business, when it comes to investment. And there is so much in terms of resources, in terms of the possibility that these countries really have to offer to the rest of the continent. I call it's been really great to co-host this episode with you. I think there's so much we've learned. And for the um, listeners that tuned in today, thank you so much. You can send us your feedback at info@massmedia.africa. As always, here's to be some profits. And thanks a lot for listening listening and see you or chat next time. Bye. The Weekly Beat by Mansa with your hosts Maggie Mutesi and Dumi Jerry, giving you all the info on Africa's big finance and economic stories. The Weekly Beat by Mansa.